Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I had a great conversation with Ilana Myers-Taylor. She is, of course, a world champion bobsledder. She's an Olympic silver medalist. She is a past president of the Women's Sports Federation and uh, has worked very hard and is working very hard to make sports uh, more fair and equitable for women and for all of us. Uh, She is a winner. And we talked about her formula for winning. We talked about how you deal with with people who are just shameless <laughs> uh, when they're being wrong. Uh, and we talked about a plethora, a plethora of other things. Here I am with Ilana Myers-Taylor, world champion, Olympic silver medalist, former president of the Women's Sports Federation. Welcome to the podcast, Ilana. It's so wonderful to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. You are a competitor. You're a champion. You've won medals. You've uh, you've made history. Talk to us about winning. How do you win? <laughs> that is a loaded question. Um, well, first, I've been blessed with some God-given talent. You know, genetically, I had a few things on my side, which definitely helps in in athletics and the sport of bobsled. But I think any athlete would agree there is a huge mental component to winning and to being successful. And, and, and that goes beyond athletics to any area of life. You know, we've got to have it together mentally in order to succeed. So I've had the benefit of being able to work with some high quality sports psychologists, psychologists, and also I'm married to the most positive person in the world. So I keep positive people around me, which really help encourage me and help me keep motivated and going after my goals. You are married to your trainer, who's also someone with whom you've competed. Talk to me about working with your partner. (laughs) So my husband, Nick, is on the bobsled team as well. He's on the men's bobsled team. But before he was a bobsledder, he was a track and field coach at UCLA. So he came into bobsled with an incredible wealth of knowledge and expertise. And through the years of competing in bobsled himself, he's also gained the knowledge and expertise on how to coach bobsledders as well as so many other athletes. And he's worked really hard to hone in his skills. And then after the 2018 Olympics, when my strength and conditioning coach decided not to coach bobsledders anymore, it just seemed like a natural fit that my husband would start coaching me. You know, it's kind of funny because as he was still an athlete, he would try out workouts on himself before he passed them off to me. Um, So he was always tinkering and experimenting on himself before he would ever, you know, just try anything on me. Um, And and it really made out for a great partnership. And it's kind of cool for me. I get to work with my best friend every single day. It seems to me that part of your formula for doing well is being surrounded by people you trust, one of whom is your partner in life. What's your advice to people who aren't that lucky? I mean, there's, you know, so much of competition is is also figuring out who your allies are, and that's irrespective of whether or not it's a physical competition or a mental competition. Uh, How do you sort of make sure that you keep yourself and your energy above whatever is challenging you, above, you know, whatever obstacles are coming from the outside. Because a lot of people aren't lucky enough, you know, to have their life partner also Mm -hmm. at their right hand when they're trying to do their work. Yeah, I think the first thing you have to remember is whenever you're going after some goal, some um, position or, or, you know, Olympic medals, uh, it's all temporary. What we do 
and what we achieve is all temporary. So the biggest thing that I try to do is stay true to myself and go after goals in a way that I could be proud of at the end of the day. I think I believe in kindness. I'm a person who I never am a person who's going to hate on my competitors um, because, you know, they're all out there working hard, doing the same thing I am, just trying to achieve their goals. You know, I don't have any reason to hate them. I race the clock, even though they're Yes, they, they, I race them essentially on a timesheet. I'm racing the clock at any regard. So their ability to succeed or not to succeed has nothing to do with me. So I try to approach everything I do with a certain level of kindness and a certain level of grace for everyone around me. And that way, whether I win or lose, I can walk off the field at the end of the day and be proud of, of the efforts I've made. And yes, sometimes um, that means, you know, I don't think I've sacrificed anything in terms of performance by making sure I'm a good person. Um, but I do know, you know, some other people would be like, oh, why are you sitting with a competitor at lunch? Or why are you doing these different things? Why are you offering to help people you're directly competing against? But I think it shows more of a person's character, how they compete and how they go after goals. So even if you're not surrounded by the most positive people in your life, you have an internal compass of how you want to approach things. And it's important to stay true to yourself. And remember that everything we do is temporary, but how you act and how you respond will leave a lasting legacy. Talk to us about a time, and I've got an example that I'll throw out at you, but talk to us about a time where you had to really measure and watch your response because of something difficult that was happening. And I'll just throw out, <laughs> I'll throw out uh, an instance that I know that you dealt with. Uh, there was, I think, a situation in the Olympics where the, a coach from another nation's team came at you with something racist. Uh, if you care to talk about that, um, I, I think it would be really helpful for people to hear about how you processed that. So fortunately, it wasn't directly at the Olympics. Um, these things tend to, tend to happen a little bit more um, a lead up to the Olympics. And that's exactly what happened with this. Is one of the coaches had made a disparaging remark about how black athletes can't drive and black athletes don't belong in the front of the sled. And they actually said this to my face at one point as well. And it is one of those measured kind of things because just reacting out and yelling at him isn't going to do me much good to dispel any negative stereotypes he has on me of course i want to of course i want to be abrasive and, and just scream and all these kind of things but it's not going to do anything to change the situation and i've always lived by the mantra is like the best way i could do to change people's minds is, is to go out there and be myself and to perform as well as i can anyways and that's exactly what i've always tried to do um, as frustrating as it is you i've always known my entire life as a Black women, there's going to be people in this world who don't like you just because of who you are before they even meet you. Um, and so the best thing you can do is, like I said, is just stay true to yourself and, and recognize that because somebody doesn't like you before they even meet you or they have these prejudgments or these stereotypes, um, that's something wrong with them. That's nothing wrong with you. Um, and it is very hard to maintain your composure, but it's important. Um, and there's a time and there's a place to you know fight and there's a time and a place to really be calculated in, in what you say and things like that and i really believe you know i've made measures to make these things known i've made measures to make these things public but yelling at him right there on the spot would not have been the image that i wanted to project and you've dealt with other situations uh because again it's important to point out that you compete in a sport that is not known for having lots of black folks uh, certainly not lots of black women and i think that it's important to just talk about something that you said, which is that sometimes, you know, even if the racism isn't overt, 
There are whole lots of folks who just don't think that, you know, people who look like you and me belong in certain types of uh, disciplines or fields. So let's try to make that experience meaningful for a young person who has to deal with that type of hostility and doesn't yet have, uh, Ilana, the, you know, I don't know, maturity, composure, presence of mind to say, I'm going to try to pull back from this idiocy and stay in my moment and stay in my game. Uh, How do we do a better job of communicating to younger people (laughs) and maybe even older people, Uh, you know, because it's a message for everybody? What's your advice for how to stay present and how to rise above somebody's aggression? Because look, it's very easy to say that racism is all about you. But when somebody comes at you like that, it is painful, it's hurtful, and it throws you off your game, I think, in a way that's different, you know, from somebody just being mean. So what do you tell a 16-year-old who's facing a situation like that? You know, I think the difficult thing about the situation is you're just going to have to sit and have a hard talk with them. Yes, you want to, in the moment, respond, and you want to respond in the same way you're being attacked and, and, you know, meet that aggression with more aggression. But the reality of the situation is today, this day of age, we are still held at a different standard. Um, So, and this is a conversation I was having with my husband the other day about raising our son now is, is there's going to be kids who pick on him. There's going to be kids who bully him or, or whatnot. And, and even as much as he want, might want to get in a fight or, or, you know, kids rough and tumble and stuff like that, he's going to be held to a higher standard as a black man. He will be sent to jail in handcuffs if he puts his hands on somebody else or if he acts aggressively towards another person. We are still in that standard and we are still in that time frame. You know, unfortunately, that's just where we are. So he doesn't have... I say luxury, he doesn't have the luxury to act aggressively. So he has to know that there are consequences for his action, even if they're unfair. And that, yes, it's unfair that he's held to that standard, but that's the reality of the situation. So what I will do when I talk to young kids about this and stuff is just use a simple counting measure. You know, when somebody comes at you, and and, which they inevitably will, it's a simple five count, simple 10 count to take your breath and really slow things down. And that's the way... You have to really approach it. You have to try and slow it down as much as possible so you can make sense of it without reacting too emotionally. I think it's so uh, interesting about the note, you know, about slowing down because you're in the field. I mean, that's not the only situation. You know, uh, there, you've talked about another incident dealing with a bobsled manufacturer who won't sell (laughs) to black bobsledders. I mean, it seems like it's almost normalized. Like there are some folks who aren't embarrassed to say, hey, black lady, you don't belong here. I mean, just shameless. There's a a shamelessness about it. You are taking these situations on. And as I understand it, you've kind of moved the ball forward to make sure that things like this are investigated. Uh, Talk to us about what you've done. Yeah. So in bobsled, our sled technology is very important. You look at bobsled, you watch it, it looks like all the sleds are the same, but they're very different. They're highly technicalized pieces of equipment and they can make the difference between winning and losing a race. And it's a shame because all this, if all the same were the sleds were the same, like they are in a monobob competition, you would see drastically different outcomes. But the way it is now, 
before you even step online, uh, some teams already have a significant advantage. And that's why having the fastest sled possible makes a world of difference. And so one of the sled manufacturers does produce one of the fastest sleds in the world, and he's not willing to sell to black athletes. And, you know, that does put us at a disadvantage. And one of the things I really wanted to do is call light to it. And, you know, people want to say, oh, you know, there's racists out there, but they can't affect what you do. You know, you could still rise above. And yes, that's true. I've been able to win medals and things without his sleds. But at the same time, I've also been at a disadvantage because I haven't had the opportunity to use the same amount of equipment as my white counterparts. Um, and I thought it was very important to, to show that, yes, you might think, yes, he doesn't run the U.S. Bobsled Federation or anything like that. He's not choosing teams, but he does have an impact and he does have an impact on results. Um, so I called it out and um, they did open an investigation. Now, it's largely hearsay, um, largely my word against his and so, of course, he denied it and all these kind of things like that. So I don't expect the investigation to go much of anywhere, but at least calling it out, you know, I think it was important because as an American athlete who was never going to use his sled anyways, um, I had a lot more freedom to kind of speak my mind on it. There are some athletes in, in federations whose federations rely on his sleds and rely on his equipment that didn't have the luxury of speaking out. So I felt it was important at the very least to make it more publicly known of what he was doing. It's, it seems so strange to me that a sport where winning isn't at least, I mean, certainly part of winning is who's in the sled. You've won that. But part of winning has to do with the machine. And it's just strange to me that it's not standardized. I mean, I'm a big Formula One fan. All of the cars are different, but there are some rules. You know, there are mm -hmm. some standards about what makes a proper car. So in bobsled, like all the cars can be different. Uh, you know, w what's the standard? There are standards. Um, there are regulations, but of course, within those regulations, there end up being a wide variety of what you can actually do. And, you know, people are always pushing the lines. The teams with more money are pushing those envelopes and pushing the lines to find the next big thing or the thing that's really close to the border of the rules, but doesn't actually break the rules. Um, and that just makes the sled go that much faster. So it's it's always an arms race as far as technology and sled technology. You've competed against men. Uh, you've made history and broken barriers there. When you did that uh, for the first time, were you nervous? Were you like, you know what, I better do really, really well um, or it's going to set the cause back? Or, you know, did you kind of not put that much pressure on yourself? I was extremely nervous, not in the least because I just wanted to go out there and show that women could drive these sleds. And um, just from the fact that there weren't going to be many women doing it, the many women's federations weren't going to be supportive. And I knew I had an opportunity. So when I first had a race where I raced for me and there were women all along the lines having posters and things like that, cheering me on and supporting me, encouraging me, you know, saying women can do it and all this kind of stuff. So of course it was a little nerve wracking, but at the same time for me, it was an opportunity and I felt like it was an opportunity worth going for. And even if I fell flat on my face, I felt that it was important enough to the next group of girls that I at least try and, and see what happens. And, and fortunately, you know, when you are willing to go out there and give all of yourself, good things happen. And I think that's what I was honestly able to go out there and do and give everything I had. And fortunately, it paid off. You've become such an important, potent figure, not just in bobsled 
and sport generally, but just for a lot of the work you've done uh, toward inclusion and opening up sport for women. You didn't even, however, plan to be a bobsledder at the outset. It was kind of, you went in a different direction. You wanted to be a softball player, but that didn't work out. So you ended up here. Tell us about that and why you made that change. Yeah. So at the end of the day, I just wanted to be an Olympian and I was going to do whatever it took to get there. And I decided that at the age of nine. Now at the age of nine, I don't think I knew really what that meant, uh, but I decided I was going to be an Olympian. So I had to make it happen. So I grew up playing a lot of different sports, softball, basketball, soccer, track and field, you name it. I played it and then went on to college and played softball there um, and then played professionally as well all with the intention of going to the Olympics. And so when I finally got my Olympic tryout for the softball team, um, I was so nervous and so jacked up. And I thought this was going to be my shot. And I knew because softball was going to be taken out of the games, this was going to be my last shot. So I put so much pressure on myself and just had the worst tryout in the history of tryouts. Like It was so bad. It was terrible. Um, so I wasn't going to make the Olympic softball team. But my parents had seen bobsled on TV and – they saw that it could be an opportunity for me from transitioning to bobsled to still live my Olympic dream because bobsled, they look for strong, fast, powerful athletes. And those were my strengths in softball. So they're like, Hey, why don't you try this? I Googled it, emailed the coach and got invited to a trial. Do you, as you look back on your career, is there anything that you regret? Anything you're like, you know what? I wish I had done that. I wish I had done this differently. I wish I had, whatever it might be, anything that you wish you would have done differently? Um, I wish I would have taken a more active role in some athlete leadership positions earlier on in my career. Um, early in my bobsled career, I was pretty shy and, you know, didn't really know where I fit in and stuff like that. And it wasn't until after I won my first bronze medal that I really felt like I could step out and, and take more of an active role in athlete issues. But I was passionate about it ever since college. In college, um, I coached that abused the team and was fired during the middle of the season. And after that point, I really became involved in athlete activism and stuff like that. So I really wish I maybe started that transition earlier in my career. And I wish it wasn't a circumstance where it took me winning an Olympic medal in order to bring that out of me. So um, hopefully now more athletes who haven't, you know, it shouldn't take an athlete winning an Olympic medal to say, hey, you know, these are the things that can be changed or these are the things that could be made better so athletes can win more medals. It shouldn't take you winning a medal already to kind of feel like you have the ability to make those statements. So hopefully now um, we're encouraging more and more athletes to speak out and to step up. You said that you worked with a coach who was abusive to the team. What type of abuse? Mental and I guess it's considered mental, emotional. I guess it's considered physical abuse uh, just because of, you know, the running till exhaustion and the lack of water breaks and, the um, you know, competing through injuries and threatening our scholarships. So you had to compete through injuries and those types of things. So um, all encompassing, really. What's the line, uh, Ilana? What's the line? Because certainly uh, we have seen and continue to hear more about coaches and trainers who cross it. But we also know that for those of you who are Olympians, who are champions, you're going to push yourself very likely <laughs> harder than I'm going to push myself physically. I mean, it is the discipline and part of winning is being pushed just beyond the point, I think, right, where you think you're done. You know, winning is when you go that extra. 
But what's the line look like? You know, what's the line? What's the difference between being pushed beyond where you think you can go and winning and really being abused? Uh, Try to explain for us, if you can, the distinction. For me, it really felt like that uh, mental and emotional component that came with it. There's one thing of, you know, whether it's softball playing, yes, we got to run a couple extra laps to push that kind of fitness and things like that. But there's a whole nother thing when you're being told you're slow, you're out of shape, you're never going to win, you're going to do these kind of things with that kind of language behind it um, that kind of changes the tone of it. And I think the biggest signal for us The softball team, the softball teams routinely have 20 athletes. At the time, the coach ended up being fired. You know, this is a Division I collegiate softball team who started out with 20 athletes. And at the time, the coach uh, was fired. We only had nine. To have that kind of rate of people quitting the team and things like that, you know, that should be a red flag to any administration that something clearly isn't right there. I think when coaches do things that intentionally put their athletes in harm's way, um, forcing to play with injuries, forcing them to do things against their best interests. That's at the point where you're no longer trying to push the athlete to be better athlete. You're trying to serve some other agenda. And, you know, I, I, I won't attempt to get in, in her mind and what was going on at the, at, in her mind during those times. But, you know, it, it does cross a line when an athlete is leaving the field day after day feeling like, there's no way they can continue this way. There's no way they can go on. Um, and it, it just becomes so much of a more mental toll than the physical sport should be. And at the end of the day, like, yes, I'm going out there and winning medals, but it's sport. Like it is, it's is children's games. You know, I slide down a hill for a living. It's a child's game. Any, anybody could do it. Like, uh, yes, maybe not at the elite level, but I could teach anyone who can drive a car, how to drive a bobsled. It's supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable. And when it gets to the point where coaches take that way too far, they put winning above everything else. The fact that we are playing children's games, you know, then it becomes really dangerous. Talk to us about what it feels like to win an Olympic medal for your country describe the sensation, because most of us will never know it, (laughs) of standing there on the podium uh, while they hang a medal and suggest that you, a representative of the United States of America, are one of the three best in the world in your sport. What's that feeling like? Yeah, it is one of the most incredible feelings in the world. Um, It's really even hard to put into words because you know it's something you've worked for your entire life. Um, So many people have sacrificed so much to help you get there. And there's so much joy and so much uh, perspective in that one moment. You know what you've overcome to get there. You know what what it took in that moment to get there, you know, between those two days of competition, like it's, there's so much going on through your head. Like I said, it's really hard to put into words and to know that you're representing your country, you know, even the U S with all its faults, with all, you know, it's history and, and stuff like I still love this country and I still am honored to be able to compete for them. So to be able to represent the country and represent millions of Americans going out there and, and working to make this country a better place, it really is the honor of a lifetime. And you are uh, representing in a way that is opening up the idea of sport to folks who perhaps once upon a time didn't think that uh, bobsled was for them. Do you think that you have made a difference uh, to young women who now might consider, who might 
consider competing uh, in that sport as opposed to something else? Has has your being there kind of shaped the perception? I know you're going to be really lovely and modest and say no, but I'm going to hazard a guess and say that this is yet another situation where representation matters. That's actually a hashtag that's more than a cliche. I think it's a real thing. Um, but how do you feel like being one of very few black women uh, to be competing? And what do you think it means for young women seeing you? Well, it has been incredible. And I think I have been successful in, in one thing and in inspiring more um, black and, and people of color to come out to bobsled, more black and pe- black athletes and people of color to come out to bobsled. Um, and I know that <laughs> because, you know, they'll come up to me and tell me and say, hey, I saw you in the 2010 games. And I was like, oh, I've been doing this way too long. If you were in elementary school watching me in the 2010 games and now you're competing against me, like this is uh, this is crazy. And so they'll tell me that, you know, I, I encourage them to get a bobsled or that's why they're here and, and stuff like that. Um, so it's been really cool to see that transformation. But it's also one of those double-edged sword kind of things because of my success and stuff. The field has gotten much more competitive, so it's gotten much, much harder to win those medals. Um, you know, more and more people are trying out bobsled and, and giving it a go. So not only has the U.S. team gotten more difficult to beat um, internationally, you know, the fact that we're having more diversity in, in people trying the sport, um, we're seeing talent and we're seeing um, more and more people just come out of nowhere and, and be successful. So it, it is like a double-edged sword in that way. It's getting much harder for me as I age to compete with these young kids coming out. So it's a good problem to have, though. I, I, I welcome it. Age, Spage. Uh, you know, it is funny, though, when you think about being in a sport, like a winter sport, there were all of these weird rumors that they used to say about Black folks and what we could and couldn't do. Like once upon a time, I, I won't name names, but I was actually um, on a show where there were different panelists. And this guy, this is years ago, over a decade. And he was kind of like, black people can't really swim. You know, the muscles, the musculature, like, you know, they say these really racist things and then dress it up using <laughs> like uh, terms that sound scientific. You know, I've heard like black folks can't ski, uh, you know, if anybody ever thought black folks couldn't bobsled, you've certainly debunked that. But um, your being there just, I think it makes a big difference to people. Uh, something else that makes a difference is your work with the Women's Sports Foundation. You are president. Uh, tell us about the work of the foundation and what you're doing to open up sport for women and make it more equitable. Yeah, so I had the honor of serving as president in 2019, and now I'm on the board of trustees. And, and so our organization just basically works to provide opportunities for all girls, all women in all different types of sports. And we really feel like sport and, and we know that sport is a vehicle to greater opportunities. You know, a lot of people see, oh, it's just a sport. Why would you want to get your kid involved in this or stuff like that? But we know 96% of women in the C-suite have a sporting background. Um, and that's too hard. That's too big of a, of a statistic to ignore. So when you know that women who go on to achieve high levels of success have a sporting background. It's like, why isn't every girl in sport? Why are we mandatory making this mandatory that every girl is in sport? Because we know it leads to greater outcomes. And so we just work to make sure every girl has an opportunity and there's a sport out there for everybody. You know, a lot of people are like, well, I'm not the fastest or I'm not the strongest or stuff, but there's tons of different sports. And um, our job is to give people opportunities and show what's possible. 96% of women in the C-suite, for my viewers and listeners, that refers to executive, uh, you know, uh, women 
executives. 96%? 96. It's staggering. Oh my God. Everybody needs to go pick up a ball or go like do something now. I feel like we need to start right now. That's an incredible statistic. Why do you think that is? Is it uh, the drive to compete on the playground makes you more driven in the, you know, in the corporate battleground? Is there some correlation there, do you think? Well, I think the distinction is, you know, we didn't say all of them were like very competitive in sport or whatever. It's the participation in sport. It's the things that sport teaches you, that teamwork, that camaraderie, but also how to set goals, how to go after goals. And and as I mentioned, you know, we're not talking about all the women in the C-suite um, who have this who have this sporting background. We're an Olympic medalist, obviously, or anything like that. Some of them were just played Little League growing up or or just participated in and ran track, ran in their local track and maybe did laps or stuff like that. So it doesn't take a certain level of being in sport in order to glean the benefits. Um, and that's why we just encourage participation for everybody because of the different things it teaches. And also we know that people who engage in sport are more likely to be physically healthy and physical health is tied to mental health. Um, and so if we can keep people healthier, you know, the likelihood that they're able to achieve more is, is much greater. You're the mother of a special needs boy. Uh, talk to us about raising a son. You and your you and your husband are both competitors. You're raising a young boy with special needs. Talk to us about being a mom uh, to your young boy. Oh my gosh, uh, my son Nico is the best. Um, and I think one of the things you know when I decided to start a family or we decided to start a family, it was really at a point in our careers that we knew if it meant bobsled was over, we were okay with that. Um, and so we decided to start our family anyways. And fortunately we've been able to continue our sporting career and be a mom and, you know, continue to win medals. So it's been a crazy journey. Um, even with his special needs, he has Down syndrome and profound hearing loss. Um, we've been able to work on his therapies on the road. We've been able to manage his doctor's appointments and everything he needs um, throughout this entire time, uh, whether we're traveling or, or whether we're here back in Atlanta. Um, we've been able to work it all out. And it's been a huge blessing. And I feel like one of the greatest gifts I've been able to give him is just being able to be out there and be seen and being able to travel the world uh, because I know, you know, there's not a lot of visibility among people of color with disabilities. And so if I could help him have that visibility, if I can share the world with him and share him with the world, I know it's going to help, you know, us continue to fight for more inclusivity. What's next for you? You've done a lot. You're doing a lot. What's, uh, what's coming up? That is a million dollar question. So I know there's more bobsledding in my future. Um, whether that will lead me to the 2026 games, it's too early to tell. Um, you know, it's hard as an athlete. Usually, you know, one way or another, as soon as you walk off from that previous Olympics, you know whether or not you're going to commit four years. But I think this year where I am in life, we're just going to take it one year at a time and see what happens. Um, right now, I'm just enjoying being a mom and, and, you know, doing some light activity and getting back into training a little bit. But really, um, just just taking every day as it comes and, and waiting to see what's next for me. I bet your view of light activity is very different from that of the rest of us. Her light activity is like, oh, I did five miles uh, before breakfast. Uh, e, Lana, you are just a joy. You're a treasure. You're doing, you're not just a competitor and you're not just a winner uh, on the hill, but you're really a winner in life. And you're just, you're doing wonderful things uh, to make sport more diverse and more inclusive. 
and to remind everybody uh, just about what being a part of a team can do for all of us. So thank you very much for being here, my friend. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. <laughs>